Preacher's kids don't have to grow up as prodigals. They can grow up with the same love for Jesus Christ as their parents enjoyed. Dave wants to share from Scripture and from his heart some of the principles the Lord has shared with his family about raising godly kids in a godless age. He begins with the challenge of getting whipped by your own kids in a video game. Remember Space Invaders? The way they get you on this game is that the first level that comes down, it's pretty easy to maneuver. You're, you know, blowing them out of the sky and you just wipe them all out. But they do something really sneaky on you. After you knock out the first wave, the next wave comes down a little bit quicker. And it's not just that the, the visual representation is a little bit quicker, but they've got this ka-thump, 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 ka-thump. You know, you can hear this noise that gets a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, and it starts to get your nervous system a little bit charged up. And after about 15 minutes, I made it through this second wave, but on the third wave, my hand-to-eye coordination failed and I'd had it. So Joel says, well, you know, that's pretty good, Dad. You're coming along at that game. You know, you're really doing well. So he starts. I said, all right, you try to beat that score, Joel. So he starts and puts it on the advanced level. And an hour later, he's still playing, and he finally lets himself be taken out so that dear old Dad can play again. It's intimidating to be a dad raising the Star Wars generation. Our kids adapt much more quickly to the new technologies that come out. I heard one dad saying that he was helping his kids with some elementary school projects and they were working in grammar school what he learned in college and that's intimidating. And one of the big questions as we think about all the progress in technology and, and all the advanced studies that our children get involved in, it can cause us as parents to begin to wonder, maybe they mature much quicker in spiritual and moral manners as well. In other words, maybe they don't need us as much anymore. Maybe some of the principles that I learned from the scripture when I was young don't really apply today. And yet, when we turn on the TV, and when we read Time Magazine, when we look at different media presentations, when we go to school board meetings, when we go to parent-teachers associations, when we go to just about anywhere in our culture, we're faced with drug abuses increasing, we're frightened about sexual immorality, and we're concerned. In fact, a lot of parents throw up their hand and say, how in the world can I ever help my kids to face the challenges, how can I raise them from the time they're a child when they're exposed to everything? How can I ever hope to raise them to be a godly person? Now, a lot of believing parents get really uptight about this whole problem. And what they say is what we really need to do is we need to lock our kids up. You see, what we need to do is to send them to a monastery. Now, back in the Middle Ages, they actually did this. They actually built monasteries, and they would send their, those that wanted to become priests or those that wanted to become nuns, they would send them to these hallowed halls. And the basic fundamental idea of this monastery is to isolate yourself completely from the world. Now, as evangelical believers, we don't build actual monasteries. Now, this approach in our day is much more subtle than that. The idea is, let's create a completely Christian environment for our kids. In other words, if you're talking to a friend over a cup of coffee, their advice sounds something like this. Ignorance is bliss. 
We will make sure our children never hear about homosexuality, about drug abuse, about prostitution, about con games that criminal plays. We'll make sure that they live in a nice, safe world. And one of the ways that we'll do this is that we'll only have believing friends. We'll make a list of rules and regulations. We'll make a list of rules and regulations which will make absolutely sure that our children don't get involved in immoral or sinful behavior. We'll have them go to the right church, to the right school, to the right Bible college. We're going to lock them up into an evangelical fundamental culture and then they're going to be safe. Now let's think about that philosophy for a minute. In fact, some of you, deep in your heart, when you're frightened, because I know that when I'm frightened about the challenges that my kids are facing, one of the reactions I have is, let's isolate them. Let's make sure they're not exposed to that. Now let's think about the way that the monastery philosophy works out. Because there's already been a group of people who applied that isolationist, legal philosophy to trying to overcome the passions inside of us. You see, mom and dad, as you raise your children, what you're trying to curb, what you're trying to train, what you're trying to control is the tiger that's in their tank. You see, as they start to grow, you find out they're angry. I mean, they can pelt their little sister. All of a sudden, just pow! And you say, why'd you do that? Because I was angry. And you go, man, where did that ever come from? They go into adolescence and you find, you know, a dirty magazine underneath their sheets. And you say, man, oh, where would this ever come from? Must be the pollution, the school or something. And it scares us. See, all of us as parents have to deal with this tiger in our tank. Now, I want you as parents to be honest, kids... Your mom and dad are wrestling with the same tiger that you are. Every single one of you are wrestling with a side of your personality which is dark, which is angry, very violent. It's very immoral. It wants to steal at times. It's very selfish, very prideful. And all of religion, all of religion has to deal with a question. How do we curb it? How do we train it? The monastery philosophy says the way to handle that passionate tiger in a human being's tank is to lock them in a specific environment. Isolation will solve it. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7 and we'll look at the Super Bowl of applying the monastery technique. In Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus is being attacked. And oddly enough, he's being attacked by a group that believe in the monastery philosophy. They were the first century Pharisees. Now, we tend to be very hard on the Pharisees. We even use expressions like they're pharisaical, and we mean that means they're hypocritical. And yet, it's awfully easy for us not to understand that in the first century, these Pharisees were very well-respected religionists. You see, I've noticed as, as we've gotten established and as we've lived here a long time that there develops an idea of acceptable religion, acceptable professionals in the area of religion. And even unbelieving people have a, a, a kind of respect for that. 
And so that when you go to some kind of a city meeting or if you go to a school meeting or something like that, people want you to pray if prayer is in order or if it's before a football game they might ask. You know, I really appreciate the fact that they have students pray, but often in a society or in a town they'll have one of the reverends pray. And if you start to think a little bit about a respected religious leader within the community, then you'll begin to feel a little bit the way the people looked upon the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the true blue religionists. They really applied the monastery philosophy. They really separated themselves from the average working person. They were very scrupulous about their rules and regulations, and you had to respect them for their consistency. So they came to the Lord in verse 1 of, of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark. It says this, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, those are the legal experts in the Jewish faith, who had come from Jerusalem. In other words, they've come from the religious capital of the world. They gathered together around Jesus. So they came to the right place and they're gathered together around the Lord Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Sounds like some of the mothers. Wash your hands! Now, Moms, they're really not concerned about hygiene. It's really a good idea. I want to tell all the kids this is not a message on why you don't need to wash your hands before you eat. It's very wise after you play in the sand pile and you get manure all over your hands and lots of other things. It's very wise for you to wash your hands. But that's really not what the Pharisees and the Jewish scribal teachers were really concerned about. Because Mark explains for us Gentiles that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, this sounds really weird to you all, but the Pharisees had a religious science of washing. I read several pages on it in the Jewish Mishnah, which was written about 200 A.D., and in the time of Jesus, this material was all coded. And what the, the scribal teachers had down is exactly how much water you use when you wash your hands. And you need to, they talk about you need to be sure that it gets up over your fist. When you pour water into the bowl, you put your fist down in it, and it must reach over your fist up to your wrist. And they have special rules like you need to use one washing, one pouring over your wrist to get the original dirt off and you dump that off and you need to pour another so much water on. Very scrupulous. Now this was great for hygiene, but the Pharisee was not just concerned about hygiene. They were concerned about pollution from evil. Pollution from sin. And you see, one of the ways in the Old Testament law, the Lord did tell them not to eat with unwashed hands. They needed to eat, have cleanliness. But they took this scriptural principle, which the Lord gave as an act of his kindness. They just drove it to intense exaggeration. But they also believed that the Lord God in heaven watched them, really watched them, washing their hands and he said, what good little children I have. They're very careful to wash their hands in exactly the right way. 
They had all kinds of rules to control the way that you wash your hands. Now, what happens when you have a group of people that have a, are very conscientious about rules? Well, when someone doesn't obey your religious rules, then you get angry. You see, if you watch somebody else, they don't cut your hair just exactly the way the religious people do. And they don't wear the clothes that the religious people wear. And they don't have a church service at exactly the right time that religious people do. And Sunday night, if you don't have a religious service, then obviously we've fallen from grace and God is very displeased. See, religious people are very, very, very uptight about external things. The Pharisees were locked in a monastery. You say, Dave, what's it talking about in these verses when it talks about washing yourself when you come in from the marketplace? Well, I hate to tell you all, I know that you all had your good Saturday night bath, but to a Pharisee, you would be unclean. You see, if I were a Jewish Pharisee in the first century this morning, I would be ridiculously unclean because I've shaken hands with Gentiles and I have touched Gentiles and I have come in contact with the unclean ones the people that are divorced from God, that are away from God, and I need to take a bath. I need to wash myself to be cleansed of your dirty influence upon me. Now you say, oh, how could they ever have been like that? Well, I've been trying to get across to you for the last several weeks. The average unbeliever out there are really convinced that they're not clean enough to come in and worship with you. They're not even clean enough to come in and find out what's going on in this place. Why? Because it's so easy for us to go out into the world and have this idea, I'm perfect, I'm clean, I'm holy. Pharisees always have that. You know, you don't even have to say anything. You just have that bearing. You know, you're out with a bunch of unbelievers. You know, and they start doing what unbelievers do. You go... It works great for me because they can, sooner or later in a conversation, I'm out with a bunch of unbelievers, and sooner or later they ask me, what do you do? And I can say, well, I'm a pastor. Like, you talk about putting a damper on unbelievers' good time. You know, they all go, I can just see them behind my back going, cut it, cut it, watch it. We've got to be holy. Put on religious mode, number 46. Well, that's the way the Pharisees were. It's amazing. That's the way the Pharisees were, but that's not the way Jesus Christ was. That always is unbelievable to me. Unbelieving people loved to be with Jesus and he's the only man that really was perfect. But unbelievers, they wanted to come to his house. They wanted to invite him to their parties. They wanted to be with him. But the religious person, the Pharisee, always has the idea, I don't want to be polluted by the people in the marketplace. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Now, let's see how the Lord interacts with this monastery philosophy. In verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Tradition's a very powerful thing. For the monastery philosophy, it's what holds it all together. This is the rules. These are the external rules that we followed when I was a child. And these are the rules that we will pass on to our kids. And these are the rules that make life really meaningful. And the Pharisees were really into that. I mean, they talked for hours about the traditions of their fathers.
And the Lord Jesus said this. He replied, Isaiah was right. When he prophesied about you hypocrites. Oh, he was really, how to win friends and influence people. So I, I just love the politicians. There's a lot of politicians, and even Republicans and Democrats. I just love the way they talk. I mean, it's smooth as silk. Man, I, I, you know, how you can take, I'm always amazed. It's a study in how to take controversial issues and say nothing about them so that you don't offend anybody, but have everybody saying, boy, that was really nice. Jesus doesn't have any of that. He looks at these religious traditionists, these people that are trying to isolate themselves from society, and says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. That's cutting through the mustard. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I ask myself that. I really do. You see, the Lord doesn't listen just to what we do with our lips. You see, when we started out singing, Oh, may the Son of God enfold me with his spirit and his love. Some of you have marvelous lips, and it's connected with a marvelous set of, of uh, larynx and a marvelous set of lungs, and it comes out like heavenly music. But some of you, the Lord didn't hear sing at all because your heart was far away. Some of you croak like a bullfrog, but you really mean what you say because your heart is connected with your tongue and your lips. And those are the ones that the Lord is looking for. You see, the Lord Jesus is always penetrating. He always penetrates my soul and your soul. He said to these religionists, these religionists were so critical. The disciples aren't washing their hands right. How bad can you get? How upset God must be. And God himself, the Son of God, God come in the flesh said, Hey, Isaiah was right when he talked about you living in your monastery, isolated from the marketplace, following all your rules and regulations, having a very critical spirit about anyone that doesn't obey your rules and regulations. Your lips honor God, but your heart is a million miles away. They worship me in emptiness. It, it's just totally empty. They may as well not even do it. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You know, that little phrase, their teaching is just rules taught by men, is an unbelievable probe into my life every time I get up to teach the Word of God. I don't want to lock you into a behavior pattern. I don't want you to think that because you vacuum the church or you clean the bathrooms or because you teach in Awana or because you teach in Sunday school or because you pray every day and have your quiet time that God is really excited about you. Those are all good things. But even good things can be made rules. They can be rules that we do externally out of pride. And not because we really love God. And every one of us this morning need to ask ourselves, am I just following rules taught by men? Am I just locked in a behavior pattern? Is this really what I'm trying to pass on to my kids? Is the reason I'm, I'm upset that my teenager is, doesn't want to do some of the things that I want them to do or is doing some other things that I don't want them to do? Is the only reason I'm really concerned about that is because of my pride? I'm afraid of what some other parents might think. I'm afraid of what my mom and dad might think, their grandparents. Your kids know that. They know when you're just teaching them rules taught by men. Some of you were raised with that kind of religion. In fact, a lot of you aren't here today. 
you're still home sleeping because your mom and dad raised you on rules taught by men. You were raised in the church and you legally went. You legally were involved. But when you got to be about 18, you said, man, I don't want to have any more of that play acting. And some of you have thrown out intimacy with other believers, being with unbelievers, and you're covered up because you're reacting to the monastery philosophy which didn't work. It didn't reach your heart. But I want to share with you, and I want all of you to take this message out to many other brothers and sisters, there really is a God that's worth honoring. There really is a Jesus Christ who's worth singing praise to. The Jesus that talked to these Pharisees is not the smooth-talking preacher who always said the right things, who always read the right poetry, who always obeyed the right rules. Jesus is much more than that. He's the Son of God who died for you and rose again. And he's alive today. And he's the King of Kings. And he's very well worth singing about, studying about, praying to. And Jesus Christ never lets any of us down. Jesus is not this monastery, very legal, very rule-oriented monastery philosophy that so many of us can react to. Jesus wants us to honor him with our hearts. He wants, us to, he wants us to worship not in vain but in truth. And he wants us to obey his teachings because his teachings are always the teaching of love. You have let go of the commandments of God and you are holding on to the traditions of men. He said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or his mother must be put to death. Now that's a rugged one. In fact, that's a commandment that we need to reiterate in our society today. Under the new covenant, God still says in Ephesians 6 that children need to obey their parents. There needs to be a respect and an honor for mom and dad. Every one of the kids need to realize that. Now, God doesn't tell you that because he hates you. He tells you that because he loves you. And it's a very, very important command. In other words, as I speak to you and I say, I want you to understand that your heavenly father is very, very concerned that you honor and respect and love mom and dad. And by the way, that doesn't stop. That honoring and respect doesn't stop when you're 21. Now, obedience might. The Lord isn't calling me as a father of four to jump when my father says jump. But the Lord's not telling Dave Wurtson, you need to obey your father. I have my own home. I have my own responsibilities. I have my own place within his family. But the Lord is calling me to honor him, to respect him, to love him. Many of you that are, that are older have been a marvelous example of children that have cared, that have loved. I've seen many of you agonize and sacrificially give to one elderly parent after another. I'm not talking about making them dependent upon you when they don't need to be. I'm not talking about invading their lives and trying to control it at all. But I'm talking about that genuine love for a parent that wells up from deep inside, that overcomes some of the hurts, 
from maybe childhood or from a teenager and you're able to forgive some of the failings that were there. You've matured enough to realize that no father, no mother is perfect and you're able to be forgiving enough and mature enough to graciously give and honor and respect a parent. So many of you have fulfilled, I've seen you fulfill this commandment of the Lord from the law of Moses and from the law of Jesus Christ. Very important for the heart of God for us to honor parents. Not a religious rule, but a divine instruction about how to live skillfully. It's wise, it's productive, it's good for us to have a deep respect for the role of a father and mother in our lives. Your heavenly father is very, very concerned that you honor and respect and love mom and dad. In a society that often makes parents out to be a joke, I pray the Lord will use these reminders from his instructional manual to help you honor your parents. Think of some concrete expressions of love they gave you and give them a call 